If you have been with us uh, the last month and a half, I've been telling in parts the story of how God has called us to start a church in the city of Honolulu, Hawaii. And uh, we're very excited about it. And there's so much that has gone on these last four years. It's been quite a while. Uh, The journey of God calling us started in March of 2012. And uh, we've been, over the last six weeks, sharing about how God did that. And today is the second to last week of that kind of story. Today will be specifically, more or less, kind of the end of the story. Next week will be the the next steps of what that looks like and how God is leading. But uh, as you heard last week, just to recap, um, I took a trip in August of last year with Pastor Britt from CARP and Lazo from here and Dave Lomas from San Francisco. And uh, this trip was really to confirm it for sure. Are we doing this? And when are we doing it? And God did. He confirmed it. It was a go. All my, you know, fears and worries and anxiety that I would maybe be crazy hearing all this stuff. Um, wasn't crazy. I wasn't crazy. And they heard the same and similar things, and it was a go. We were starting a church, and I left feeling invigorated and excited, like you, you would seem like, wow, God, you have called us, and you are doing this. But immediately, I think on the plane ride back, I felt the weight of that. Um, same thing happened when I asked my wife to marry her. Right? You ask someone to marry you, if you've done this, um, and it's awesome, and it's amazing, and she said yes, and like, this is good. And immediately, at least for me, you feel the weight of what that means, of what you just asked this girl to do. Right? Like, I'm going to be a husband, and wow, what does that mean? Okay, that means this, and... Wow, okay, it just, it just gets really, it gets real quickly. Um, you know, you get, anything that's not ready, you got to get ready, and you just, at least for me, that's how I felt. Um, so came back, and the day after I got back, we found out we were pregnant with baby number two. So that's another thing, right? Like starting church, okay, having a baby too. So, okay, sure, God, no problem. Giddy up. Um, and, you know, again, start, things started getting really real. We looked forward to this year and what that means and what we were doing and wife being pregnant. And we realized, man, we really need to go. We don't, I don't see how we're going to be able to go uh, other than, like, in, in a little bit. And so this is in August. In November, we, uh, we, this is the only real time that we could go as a family. And there was a lot that we just had questions about. And we had some worries and some concerns. And we just kind of wanted to figure things out, um, knowing that it might be really the last time as a family we could go before we actually move, potentially. And uh, we had a threefold purpose or intention. This is what we feel like, this is what we went into that trip with. One, it was to just simulate living there and, and let it have its results. Like just drop in, uh, rent a little house in a neighborhood, try to pretend to live there, try to just figure out traffic and the you know, the rhythms of the city, and just let that have its result. Good, bad, or ugly. Hard, good. Just let it have its result. Secondly, it was just to survey and, like, learn the city. Um, Just what's happening here? Who lives here? Where do people live? Where do people work? Just sponging, studying, getting out maps, figuring out what the heck this place is. Um, We're getting called here to move here, to start a church. We better figure this stuff out. Um, And then number three, our our plan was to, to really scout and what I mean by that is to, 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 to just ask people that you come in contact with, like what it's like living here, and get some intel, and, you know, a guy in Starbucks, ask him, like, hey, what's this like here? And went to a few churches while we were there, and, um, and so we went, and it was an incredibly blessed trip. It was just one of those things where God did exceedingly abundantly above all that we wanted. I mean, we had lofty goals, but we, you know, drove around all day, every day. We drove through neighborhoods and just tried to figure out where we could, you know, where God was calling us to live, where we could afford to live. We toured a bunch of schools trying to figure out, you know, getting there. How, how do we get our kids plugged into schools? Kids plural at this moment, tripping out still about baby number two. Um, but we went, and it was amazing. And a, a big part of the puzzle, if you've been listening, is God has called, God has highlighted a specific area of the city of Honolulu by the name of Manoa, the Manoa Valley. This is where uh, UH, the University of Hawaii Manoa is, and I've shared a bit of that story already in the previous weeks. But 
I wanted to figure that out. Like, God, what do you, why have you highlighted that? And specifically, my wife had never been to that part of the city, and I was so excited to take her there. And so first morning we get there, I, I, I take her there, and I'm just, I just don't say anything, and I'm just sitting back waiting, just hoping, but also anticipating, like, is God going to speak to her? Is she going to feel anything? Or like, is anything going to happen? Because if you've heard the previous stories, a lot has happened uh, when we've, we've been there. And... Uh, sat back and allowed the Lord to speak. And as soon as we started driving, uh, we're actually driving right through U of H and at the mouth of the valley of that neighborhood. Um, Zoe looked over to me and she's like, Zoe, my wife, call her Zoe. And uh, she said, honestly, I like actually just didn't want to feel anything. You know, I was like, "Ah, I don't want to feel anything. This is weird. She's like, something is happening. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, honestly, this place just feels special to me for some reason. And I'm just getting the sense that like, God is working and he's at work and he wants to move here. And he's definitely doing something and he just feels like we're supposed to be involved. And this was over the course of a few hours that we had spent the time there. But there was this initial thing that was happening. And for me, it was super confirming. I mean, it was super just helpful. You know, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. Was she not going to feel anything? Just like, this place is horrible. I hate this place. Um, but no, God did. He spoke to her. And each day, we went back to that valley. And during our time there, every day we would drive around, there was tangible spiritual opposition. Like any of us, we were feeling, you know, discouraged, and we would be overwhelmed at times, and we would just be exhausted. And, you know, there was certain things that were really kind of messing with, with us a bit. But what was happening was when we went to Manoah, it just turned into this refuge for us. It was weird, I, I know, but, but for us, the Lord allowed us, each day we went back there, whether it's the end of the day or midday, we felt like we could just reconnect with Jesus again. We felt like at peace. We felt like we could be refreshed. We just felt like we could think straight. I don't know if you've ever experienced that type of thing, but especially when we're going to this city with spiritual eyes praying, there was naturally some opposition that happened. And every single time we went into that valley, it was just this weird, really cool Jesus thing that happened. I can't explain it. But it felt like, I told my wife this, I felt like, babe, it feels like, a mile, or like just outside of the valley, you could just do the gnarliest ministry that was just insane and come back and just be refreshed again. It just was this, this it, for us, it was this place that this was happening. And what this trip did for us was really solidify and highlight Manoa. And specifically, um, we just feel like we're supposed to live there. We're supposed to, that, that we're supposed to do life there and minister to our neighbors and go to the store there and ride our bikes there and like, that's where we're to do life. That, that, that might by no means be where the church is. Um, but we feel like at least the portion of like us doing life as a family in the community, that's where it's supposed to be. And most importantly, the Lord really just gave us this picture of our home being a refuge and a place of filling for all that God has us to. And there was a few words that just came up as we prayed and as we continued to go there. It was put roots down. Like, put roots down. Be there for a while. And it was really weird because I'm just one of those kids. I guess I call myself a kid. Uh, I've never moved—Santa Barbara, Galita, and Carp is the the extent of my moving. For good reasons. I love this place. Uh, Traveled a ton. Never, ever, ever wanted to be anywhere else. Just, just— just never wanted to. For the first time ever, I was like, I was just this sense where I could be dramatic, and I'm dramatic a lot. That's okay. But I told my wife, and I'm like, I might just be getting so far ahead of it, but the feeling that I have when God is telling us to put roots down is it feels like I could, like, die in this valley. Like, like just live here and do ministry, and that just, I don't know where else God's going to call us, but, like, for now, it just feels like This is where we're supposed to be for the long haul. And I'm so, so okay with that. That was huge. That that was huge. That was huge. And everything was was just amazing on this trip. but, But there was one thing that wasn't clear. And that was the schooling component. And even though we know that God was going to provide and he was going to do it and 
it'll come. We, we were a little bit discouraged because every other, everything that we had prayed about happened and God made it clear. But, but we really didn't know anything about where our kids would go to school, especially when they got there. Like a priest, just, just right, right when they get there, we'd love to assimilate into living here. And so we were headed to the airport. And one last time we stopped by the Manoa Valley. I was like, I want to go back. I, I just want to go back to that place. And went to Starbucks there, and we were just talking, me and my wife, and we were just saying, you know what, this has been incredible, but we're just a little bit bummed on the school thing. And we're telling how, each other how much we wish we found one, and we had to go to the airport. And so we walked out the back door of the Starbucks and, to go get our car, and I look up, and I'm like, there's a school. There's a school right here, and out the back door. And, and, she's like, and I'm like, babe, what's this school? She's like, I have no idea. I'm like, what do you mean? We've looked online. We're looking in the Manoas Valley specifically. Where did this come from? And both of us were like, it came out of nowhere. This is just here. God provided this right now. Um, no, so we walk in and we're just so in puzzlement because we've looked. We've been down this street before. We haven't seen this. It was just one of those weird things. And we went in and we immediately just got to meet the director and we started talking to her and seeing the classrooms and seeing everything and hear how they do it and it was, it was just like everything we would want. It was just this, we couldn't believe it. And we looked at each other and we're like, this is it. We found it. And, and, and once again, I mean, we were literally going to the airport. Once again, God had come through. This time it was the last minute in the fourth watch in the 11th hour. But in all the places, it was in the Manoa Valley. And it, just, just, it was just like the cherry on top. It was like, God, it would have been so, everything you've already done is totally enough but you've done it again, and coming back, even being here right now, people are like, do you want to go back? Do you need to go back? And, and it, it, God did so much on this trip that it feels like we know exactly what we're supposed to do. We know we're supposed to live. We know we're supposed to put our kids, at least for a little bit. We know what part of the city. God will do the rest. But we just feel so clear what God wants us to do. And um, that's all glory be to God. Only God can do that type of thing. Um, so that's the end of the story today. Next week, we will share the steps of us moving forward. But uh, praise God, huh? Amen. God is good. <clears throat> All right. Well, we're going to get into the book of 2 Timothy. So why don't you turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 is our text this morning. Just so you know, I can hardly see any of you right now. Many lights in my eyes. And uh, so, like, not chatter like you're talking to each other, but amens or noise. It it helps. It actually will help. Every every preacher likes this. It's like fuel on the fire. Like, okay, they're not asleep because I would not know. If you were quiet, half of you walk out of that room wouldn't know. That dark. I'm thinking about coming. I'm thinking about coming out. What do you think? Sound guys hate me. Don't hate me. <laughs> okay, back out. Okay, well, anyway. Okay, back to Timothy. Just crowd participation is uh, helpful. That's all I wanted to say. Um, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8. We are in, as you can see, the final chapter of the book of 2 Timothy. This is our second to last week. Next week, we will be finishing this book and our time in it. And as you've known, if you've been here, this letter, in this chapter specifically, chapter 4, contains some of the very last words spoken or written by the Apostle Paul. If it's not, obviously, his direct last words, they are certainly the last which have survived that we have. It's a big deal. Paul, Paul wrote like 13 books of the New Testament, two-thirds of it. I mean, this is Apostle Paul. These are his last words that we have. And, and it's been an incredible journey looking through this intimate letter, letter between Paul and Timothy. And we've studied and discovered together um, a series of charges or imperatives or necessary things that Timothy ought to do in order to be faithful to his calling and to be faithful to Christ with his life. And for me, knowing what God has called us to, me specifically and my wife, 
This letter has ministered to me so deeply. I mean, because for Timothy, he, he was in vocational ministry as a pastor and an elder uh, in a church. And so that's me. So every time that Timothy's name is written, I've inserted my own. And I've challenged you guys to do that. But I just want to let you know how, in, how incredible this has been to me. And prayerfully, it's been for you. Even though, obviously, not all of us are pastors in a church um, and elders in a church. But nonetheless, these truths have been for us. And prayerfully, they've ministered to you as well over this last month and a half in a deep way. So today, Paul continues on. He continues on instructing and pouring in and charging his young prodigy, Timothy. And so why don't you read with me 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Paul speaking. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Excuse me, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. But I, Paul, am being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all those who have loved his appearing. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. And we thank you, Lord, that even though it was written from Paul to Timothy 2,000 years ago, that you have preserved it. And that what what we we read last week is that all of this is God-breathed and God-inspired, and it's profitable for teaching, for correction, for proof, for training us in righteousness, so that we, the man or woman of God, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Lord, we ask that you would have your full effect on us today that your will would be done, not mine, not ours. We ask that you would speak to us, Holy Spirit, in a really prophetic, profound way, that you'd give us revelation and understanding of what your word is saying in context of when it was written, but also how that applies to our own life, sitting here in this room in this city right now. And God, we thank you that... Thank you that we have the testimony of men like Paul that really were attempting to be image bearers of Christ. Thank you that we have Paul as an example, but you're the ultimate example. You're the ultimate example of which we're to follow and to look to and to glean from. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that, Jesus, that you would become large in our hearts and minds this morning. That you would... If, if you're not, or if you've come off the throne, that you would get back on the throne of our lives. That everything else would pale in comparison to knowing you. And that we would be a people that can say, as Paul would say, at the end of our own lives, that we have fought the good fight. That we ran the race, that we've kept the faith. Thank you, Lord. We pray that you would do this work in our hearts this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Timothy is reading this letter. And as you can see, Paul is continuing to charge him with different things. But this time, he adds something to these charges. And what he does is he's reminding Timothy on whose authority he's speaking. He just wanted to remind Timothy, it's not just me, Paul, saying these things to you out of my experience of ministry. It's God himself. Verse 1. Paul telling Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by 
And with anticipating his appearing in his, in his coming kingdom, Timothy, I charge you with these things. Paul is not issuing this charge out of his own name, out of his own reputation, or his authority. And as you can guess, or as you can see, perhaps the strongest of all incentives to faithfulness is the sense of a commission from God. And, and, and that would be true for us, too. If God is telling me, you know, I might struggle a little bit here and there, but if God himself is telling me to do that, I'm going to do it. For Timothy, if, if he could be assured of this, that he was a servant of the Most High God and an ambassador of Jesus Christ, and that Paul's challenge to him is God's challenge, then nothing would deflect him from his task. Nothing would. And for us, it's the same. And what we need to do this morning as we read this is understand that this is God's charge for us. It's his word for us that we would obey it. And again, some of these charges, some of the things that Paul is telling Timothy won't completely correlate or relate to us in the same ways. But nonetheless, they are truths that we are to adhere to and obey in the same way that Timothy would. But even though it would seem that the main emphasis would be the presence of God, in this verse, however, it's not so much that, but the coming of Christ. See, it's evident here, even in Paul's last letter, that he still believes in Christ's personal return. Paul still believed in the second coming of Jesus Christ. At this time, Paul had done ministry for 30 years, more than 30 years. And in his earliest letters that he penned to the churches in Thessalonica, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he mentioned the return of Jesus, and now, many years and experiences later, he still believed it with all his heart. Jesus is coming back. And in light of that, Timothy, do these things. Jesus is coming back, so live in anticipation to that. John Stott said it this way concerning this text. He says, although he, Paul, knows that he will die before this takes place, the coming of the Lord, yet still at the end of his ministry, he looks forward to it. He lives in light of it, and he describes Christians as those who love Christ's appearing. Verse 8 of our text this morning. He is sure, Paul, that Christ will make a visible appearing and that when he appears, he will both judge the living and the dead and he will consummate his kingdom or his reign. All of the weight of verse 1 bears on what Paul says in these next verses. Paul could not have emphasized this matter more strongly. Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, knowing that he is coming back to rule and reign, to judge the living in the dead. In light of these truths and under God's authority, do these things. I mean, you see the weight of that when, when Timothy is reading this letter. What Paul does is he follows with a series of charges and commands or imperatives. The Bible, many times, starts with an indictive. It's an indicated truth. It's a truth about who God is and who we are in Christ. And then it follows with an imperative. An imperative being a necessary truth that we must do in light of that indictive. Does that make sense? That's what, that's what Paul's doing here. He's... Stating the truth of who God is, and he's following with, in light of that truth, this is what you must do, Timothy. We see ten charges or imperatives here in this section. Before I tell you them, you have to understand that Paul is speeding up the charges. Ten in three verses here is a lot. You have to wonder, did Paul get like a cramp in his arm? And he's like, I can't write anymore. Timothy, you just got to do all these things right now. You know, in prison, shackled. Just joking. But there, there's more that Timothy needs to know. There's more that we need to glean from 
to follow Christ and to be faithful to Christ. And these, these are the ten things that he's saying in our text this morning that, that, we'll, that, that we'll just run through. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And it's not stated like this, but we see Paul's life, a testimony to finish well. All of these are for us. Like I said before, some may have more emphasis for someone that might be in vocational ministry or uh, are in some sense in ministry, preaching and teaching the word. But nonetheless, these are for us, for Timothy, but for us that we might adhere to these things to follow Christ. The first thing Paul would say to Timothy in light of these truths in verse 1, verse 2, he would say, preach the word. Remember what word Paul is talking about here. We talked all about it last Sunday. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The word that Paul is talking about is the inspired, God-breathed word. He said it's profitable for teaching and for reproof or correction, for training in righteousness, so that you would be adequately equipped for every good work. The word that Paul is telling Timothy to preach here is God's word. It's the authoritative word. It's the same word that by hearing it creates faith. Romans 10, 17. The same word that does not come back void. Isaiah 55. The same word that's like a fire and a hammer, the prophet Jeremiah said. In Hebrews, it's it's, it's said to be living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. That same word, Timothy, preach it. Preach it. Preach it. What that means is proclaim it, tell it, expound on it, teach it. What Paul, in other words, is saying to Timothy, Timothy, don't let your mouth shut. Don't water it down. Don't beat around the bush with it. Don't sugarcoat the word of God. And Timothy, preach God's word and not your own word. People don't want to hear about you, Timothy. So Paul said, people don't want to hear about you. People don't want to hear me. People don't want to hear Chris. People don't want to. We need to hear the word of God. The words of God is what need to be preached. And what Paul is telling Timothy here is, Timothy, they need God. Lead them to his word. Lead them to him through his word. Church. Let this speak to us that when someone comes to us with counsel or care or wisdom or prayer requests, lead them to Jesus. Lead them to his word. Don't give them yourself. Don't give them your experience. You can use that as maybe a bonus, but lead them to the word of God. Show them Christ in the word. Oh, how I wish that these truths that are spoken about here, many more pastors and preachers would listen to. Sadly and tragically, as you might know, many evangelicals have moved away from this. They've moved away from the word. And sadly, you may have even attended some churches that someone gets up to teach and nothing from the Bible was even quoted. It was their own illustrations. It was their own experiences. It was this book and that book, this guy and that other. Where was Jesus? Where was the word? This is what Paul is telling every preacher ever that's ever been or ever will be. If you're going to open up your mouth in a place of any type of leadership, tell of the word of God. Obviously, there's an abruptness to these commands if you read it as a letter. And what this abruptness does is it really conveys urgency. It conveys terminal urgency that Timothy must waste no time in doing these things. He must get on with them. Timothy, you've got to preach the word. Open up your mouth. Don't water it down. Give him Jesus. Secondly, Timothy, be ready. Be ready in season and out of season. Don't get caught off guard. Know the word, know what it says, know why you do what you do. For Timothy, 
and every Bible teacher, preacher, and pastor, we should always be ready. We should preach the word when it's easy, and we should preach it when it's hard. We should preach it when the fruit is evident, and we should preach it when the fruit's invisible. We should just preach it. Can I get an amen? Amen. I know you guys love the word of God, so that's why I'll say that. But the same would be for us, for all of us. We need to immerse ourselves and saturate ourselves with the word so that we are ready. We're ready to give an account for our faith. We're ready to know what to do in a certain situation. We're ready to answer questions. It doesn't mean that you have to do every, know everything at all moments. But the question is, are we endeavoring to do so? Are you training? Are you studying? Are you reading? Are you... The, the command here is be ready. Be ready. Are, are we doing that, church? Are we doing that with the word of God? <clears throat> Excuse me. Paul goes on and he says, you need to be prepared to do these things. And he lists three more charges. He says you need to be ready and be prepared to reprove, to correct, to rebuke, to, to tell people when they're wrong, to show them in the word of God why their conduct is not godly. You need to exhort them. You need to be able to show them the right way in which their lives ought to be lived through the word of God. All these you need to do with great patience and instruction, Timothy. I love that Paul adds that because he's saying, Timothy, don't just go around and beat beat someone over their head with a Bible. Don't just be a sin sniffer. Don't just go around and just point out people's sin and what they're doing wrong. He says, do these things with great patience and, and, and tell them why. Instruct them. Teach them why. Don't just tell them why that's wrong. Teach them why it's wrong so that next time they won't do that. Timothy, you need to do these things. And remember, if you remember last to the verse I just read, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, what we studied last week, God's words, the purpose of God's words are actually these things. They're profitable for teaching or instruction. They're profitable for reproof or rebuke, for correction, for reproof. They're, They're for these things. And so if you haven't already got it, why it's so important that we read our, our own Bibles in context is that we, too, need to know the way in which we are to live, the way in which we're to conduct ourselves, the way, the way in which we're to live for Christ. What does it mean that we're an image bearer? What does it mean that we're a Christian? What does it mean to live for Christ? If we don't know those things, well, it's going to be hard to do these things to other people if we ourselves don't know what we're supposed to do. We'll be lost and confused if we don't know the word of God. And for Timothy here, and for all of us, in order to preach the word, you first need to know the word. It's kind of, kind of a no-brainer. For all of us, in order to instruct and teach and correct other people with the word of God, well, first, in order that we aren't hypocrites— We need to first let the word truly transform our own lives. We need to let it read us. We need to let it examine us. We need to allow it to shape us into the image of Christ. But let's be honest. Unless our heart is changed, even with all the head knowledge in the world, we really won't be ready in that moment as we need to be unless it's truly a part of who we are. In order to be ready in season and out of season, it isn't a matter of just cramming in and, you know, knowing it here. We need to know what the Word of God says here. One of the main reasons why Paul is telling Timothy of this, he says, which we talked in depth a few weeks ago, is, is Paul is telling Timothy, you need to do these things. You need to preach the Word, and you need to be ready, and you need to rebuke and rep- reprove, and you need to... to, to to train, because there's an immediate danger, there's an immediate threat upon the church and upon yourself. Verse 3, he says this, if you want to follow along with me. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they, those that don't know the Lord, those that are around you, 
those that, that are struggling, they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Sounds so much like today. People choose what they want to hear. That should be no surprise to you. If something in a church service specifically or at a certain church upsets the way of life someone wants or they don't like what they hear, many times they leave. If it's not the way they want to hear it, if it upsets their equilibrium of how they they ought to live life, which the Bible will do that, Jesus will turn your tables over. Rightfully so. Happens so much today that people don't want to hear what God has to say. For Timothy, he needed to keep focused on the Word of God because man, by our nature, by our natural instinct, does not want God's revelation. We would rather hear what we want to hear, and as Paul would put it, something to scratch the itching of our ears. Oh, 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 that sounds good. Oh, that, that meets my needs. Or you know what? I can still do this, but also love Jesus at that church. This is really scary, actually. And it's all around us. You, you would see this in, um, in a lot of different ways. Uh, prosperity gospel, maybe a seeker-sensitive movement, maybe an emergent church. Um, there's churches out there, you know, speaking specifically of the prosperity gospel, which at one spectrum would be, you know, pretty severe in saying, you know what, if you truly love Jesus and obey him, you will be rich. There's, the, there's people that say that and preach that. A lot of people go to church. But then, you know, there's other churches that they're not going to say it that strongly. Not, come on, we're not going to say it that strongly. But what they do is they're, they're minimizing sin. They're minimizing pain. You never hear about suffering. Everything's just good with Jesus. I'll be honest. Some of those aren't even the same gospel. That's not even the Jesus. That's not even the word. That's nothing. The word of God doesn't say that. And sadly, what Paul is telling Timothy here, people are just going to go and accumulate for themselves teachers of what they want to hear. It's happening today. And here's why it's so bad. Here's why it's so damaging. That 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 distortion of the gospel and that incorrect interpretation of who God is and what his word says may have such a negative and, and really deceptive effect that people will actually fall away from the true gospel, from Jesus. And this is Paul's concern. This is his charge to Timothy. His charge to Timothy is, Timothy, in order to protect the sheep, you need to preach the word. In order to protect the sheep from believing unsound doctrine and going somewhere where they just want their ears tickled, you need to preach the word, Timothy, and you need to tell them about Christ and the fullness of who Christ is. Don't water it down. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't give them Timothy. Give them Jesus. Paul goes on. You with me? We're like halfway through the charges here. It's a lot that Paul has to say. So there's more charges in verse 5, if you read with me. He says, but you, Timothy, in stark contrast to people he just talked about, but you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Be sober there doesn't mean don't, like, don't get drunk. Though that's a true godly principle, and you shouldn't. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is, Timothy, all this is happening. You need to be clear-headed. You need to be aware, and you need to be alert. You need to be on your toes. Be ready in season and out of season. You need to be sober-minded when it comes to these things. He says, Timothy, you also need to endure hardship. And we've talked a lot about this over the last month and a half. Suffering is, is, is coming. It's there. Persecution. 
is at your front door. Timothy, this isn't going to be easy. You need to endure what is in front of you. You need to persevere. You need to long suffer. This isn't a sprint. It's a long distance race. Endure hardship. And then he says, do the work of an evangelist. Tell those who don't know Jesus about Jesus. What I like here is it doesn't say that Timothy's a gifted evangelist. Because God can give you the gift of evangelism. We're all supposed to be evangelists, but sometimes God gives you an extra portion and you are an evangelist. I mean, that's just who God's made you to be. For Timothy, he's timid Timothy. By nature, he is not an evangelist. He would not want to do that. Maybe one-on-one counseling, maybe. But what, but what Paul is saying here is, Timothy, whether or not you feel like you're extra gifted or your personality lends to just go telling people about Jesus, you need to do the work of one. Do the work of an evangelist. Don't forget, don't forget that, that secondary to loving and honoring Christ. Like, Timothy, that's your first goal, like, right? Love and honor Christ. Secondary to that is loving your neighbor as yourself and telling them about Jesus. So even though you may not feel like you have the words to say, this is what I'm speaking to you now, or myself, even though we may feel fearful, or we not have the words to say, or it just feels like it's not the right time, or all the excuses that we give ourselves, why we haven't talked to the guy next to us in our cubicle about Jesus, or why the parent on our kid's soccer team doesn't know what you believe, is that we just need to do the work of an evangelist. Doesn't mean you have to be gifted. You don't have to be like the Apostle Paul that was just on every soapbox everywhere, unashamed of the gospel, just everywhere he went, people knew he was about Jesus. But church, let's do the work of an evangelist. Despite all those things that we could say of the why nots and why we haven't. Let's just, you know the best way to tell someone about Jesus? Your testimony. It just diffuses everything because you're just being real honest about your own life and your own struggles and what you're saved out of and what, what your life is right now. And you know, the best part of the testimony is, you know, 10% about you, 90% about Jesus. You're just the inroad, the open door. But, but, people, but people care about you. So, so, so tell them about yourself. Ask them about their own life. It's the best way. This is one of the best ways to, to, to do the work of an evangelist is tell your testimony of what God did in your own life to those around you. We must take these things to heart. Be sober, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. The ninth thing that he says here, fulfill your ministry, Timothy. Timothy, you need to be faithful to what God's called you to. And for us, you know, majority of us in this room, it's not going to be full-time vocational ministry, but what has God called you to? Do it. Be faithful to what God has called you to. And for some of you, you're like, I don't even know what that is. Well, where do you work? That's your, minis- that's your missions field right there. Friend group, there. Class that you have on Thursday afternoons at college. That's, your, that's, it, that's it. Be Jesus in that right now. Some of you, you might have a, like a, a, some, some callings. You have kids. You're called to the kids. You're married, called to your spouse. You actually have lots of callings. You're single, You're called to be single in your context right now and be Jesus to everyone around you. A note on singleness, real quick. I'm going to do this right now. Because many of you guys are single. I don't know if that's amen, but... But you probably want to hear what I have to say. There's this thing where, like, if you're single... This is such a bummer because you want to be married and have kids and there's always something ahead of you. Yes, kids, and yes, marriage is wonderful gifts from God. But you have to know that if you're single, whether you think of it or not, you have the ability and the mobility and the time to do whatever you want to do. I I know there's real things. I got to work. I got to pay. I understand that. I understand you want to, I get it. I, I, don't, I, wish, I don't want to be single anymore, right? I'm not single. I don't want to be single again. But here's what I don't have anymore that you have if you're single. 
You like how I walked out here? It's like a serious talk. (laughs) For a lot of you, God could call you at the drop of a hat and you could leave everything that you have right now and go. (laughs) All five of your nights of the week, all seven of your nights, do you have to put any kids down? No. Do you really have like any ties anywhere? I have a job. Well, yeah, but you can get another one. If something doesn't work out, you can, work, you can move home. I'm just saying, like, why not be radical? <laughs> I don't even know where I am anymore. Okay. Be faithful to what God has for you right now. If you're single and you're always looking for what's ahead, you are so going to miss out on where God has you right now. I'm going to leave it. I'm going to bury it. Uh, that's, that's good, though. I wish someone told me that. Verses 6 through 8, Paul is so not done. And neither am I, but I'm close. Okay, here we go. Paul speaking. He says this. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also those who have loved his appearing. Paul is describing himself here. And the first thing he says is, is kind of weird, if you don't know what it means. He says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. And he's, he's, he's using himself as an example, his life. And the idea of a drink offering is first presented in Genesis chapter 35, verse 14, where Jacob poured out a drink offering before the Lord as a sacrifice. And in the Mosaic Law, drink offerings could be part of a sacrifice to the Lord. You see this in Exodus 29 and Leviticus 23. A drink offering, what it was, is it brought wine before the Lord, and it poured it out on his altar. And it was a way to give wine to God as a sacrifice, just as an animal sacrifice would be given as a sacrifice. He's, he's saying that his life has been poured out as a sacrifice to the Lord. It's all been in worship to you, Father. Because that's what it was then. It was, it was worship. A sacrifice would have been one of worship. Paul's saying, all that my life has been has been worship unto you. And I've been poured out. This idea is, is complete giving. There's no reservation. There's not like Paul has you know, compartmentalized his life. God, I've given you everything here, but I've kept a little bit for myself. He's saying, everything that I am, I've poured out as worship unto you. What Paul says here is that my time of my departure has come, and it has. Paul knows that he's not getting out of prison this time. It's his time to go be with Jesus. But he doesn't just end there, and he doesn't just end the letter. What he does is he describes his life, and he says, I've fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. He's talking about finishing well. He's using his own life as an example. This is number 10. Timothy, my heart, my desire for you is that you would finish well in the same way that I have. A note about finishing well in any aspect of our lives is that finishing well is is really one of the hardest things to do. For us, starting stuff is really no problem. A lot of people can start well. Just you started a project at home, you started a new job, you started anything. It's really good to just like, I'm going to start well, out of the gates, come flying, come sprinting. Wow, this is amazing. But what happens is, is you get bored or you get discouraged or you come up against a problem or more time goes on than you wanted. And, you know, the typical analogy would be like guys starting projects around and they don't finish it and they start another one and there's like all these unfinished projects. But for many of us, we don't finish well. Just with, just with stuff, just with stuff in our lives. Like, we're great starters. Wish I finished that one. Not great at sticking it out to the end. But Paul here, Paul had come to the end of his earthly life. And he finished well. 
And it was in the areas where it counted. It was in his personal faith and his, his calling from the Lord. He didn't fall away. He didn't turn from Christ. In the face of incredible hardship, persecution, rejection from everyone he knew, he clung to Christ. And if there's anyone that had reason to give up, it was Paul, right? If there was anyone that could say, dude, it's just too much following Jesus. This is too hard. There's too much sacrifice. There's too much stuff that I have to give up. This is just too hard. If there's anyone that would have said that or thrown in the towel, it would have been Paul. Sadly, this is not the case for lots of people. As I was studying this this week, maybe as you're sitting there right now, I'm sure you can think of family and friends that no longer go to church. They no longer have an active faith, and maybe they don't even have really a faith at all anymore. Uh, For me, this is really, really hard to see because couple of my really good friends this has happened to. They're not walking with the Lord anymore. And and, and I'm sure you can, I'm sure it's the same for you. I'm, I'm sure this has happened. But what also is sad, even if it's not a personal connection, if we look at the amount of pastors that have fallen, that have burnt out, that didn't finish well. Obviously, you know, this is really hard and this is close to home. This is just, this is just the world we live in. And unfortunately, there's a lot of it. But the question is, we have to ask this. I mean, this is, this, is, this is why we're here. We have to allow the word of God to read us. Is Will this be us? Will we finish well in our walks with the Lord, in our faith, with what God's called us to? Will we, with confidence in the way that Paul does here, be able to say about our lives and our walks with Jesus that we have fought the good fight and we've, ran the, we've kept the faith? I mean, literally, on our deathbeds, however that old that may be for you, however long that may be from now, will we be able to say those things? For me, um, it's probably one of the things I fear most. I fear most not finishing well and not being obedient to the Lord, not getting the fullness of what God had for me. Someone actually asked me that once. It was in our internship here at church, and they said, it was just like, like this weird mixer getting to know me. I said, what's your worst fear? You know, you, you know, it's supposed to be like a spiders or heights or sharks or something. All those are, yes. But uh, I said, honestly, my worst fear is to be like outside the will of God, disobedient, missing out on all that God has for me. <laughs> if there's anything that I fear most, is not finishing well. Right? Again, we can all start well. We're here. You got saved. You, you, you know, you're, in, you're, 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 you're at church. You're going to a home group. For many of us, the, the start of our faith is so, you know, we're, you know, quote unquote, on fire. And it's vibrant. And it's, it's amazing. But then we, but then it, we struggle. And, and sadly, there's not a ton that, of us that finish well. But how do we? What, is it, what, 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 this, what does this look like? How did Paul, in light of that, in light of looking as, to Jesus as our ultimate example of obeying Christ despite what was in front of him, right? That he finished well. Looking at these examples of Scripture, what is it about Paul here specifically that made him finish well? Well, in order to finish well in anything, once the exciting stuff starts wearing off, a lot of time it's filled with the tedious, mundane, monotonous stuff. And we hate those words. We literally hate those words. Like in your job or just w- w- with your walks with the Lord, we hate the, 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 the mundane, the, the tedious, the monotonous stuff. And, and most of us run into this, these kind of things and we don't finish well because we hate the tedious and the mundane and the monotonous. The same is true for our walks with the Lord. See, our walks with Jesus, our lives with Christ, require maintenance. Continued maintenance. Constant filling up. Constant checkups. Constant tweaking. These are the words that you 
that you want to see in your relationship with Jesus? Endurance, consistency, routine, discipline. And you want to see those words day in and day out. I'm not discounting the mountaintop experiences or the really incredible moments that we have with the Lord. I'm not discounting that. But what I will say is that the battle for longevity in your faith or or, or to win the war here, uh, to to fight the good fight, to, to run this race is won in the little things over the course of a long time. Our walks with the Lord need constant attention. They need constant maintenance. The secret that Paul found and hold, held on to, it's, it shouldn't be a secret. It's just, the, the, the scripture is dripping with it, but it's devotion to Christ. What Paul did was he kept, maintained, and nurtured consistent devotion to the Lord. Consistent connection. He was constantly reminding himself of what God said. He was spending time and time again in prayer. He was meditating on the word of God day and night. I mean, he kept Christ in front of him continuously. If there's one thing that you're going to see through Paul, with through thick and thin, through rich or poor, <laughs> and good and bad, I mean, this guy was devoted to Christ. For Paul, his lifeline, his fuel, his source of endurance, his source for strength, and the key to him being able to say this very statement in truth and in confidence at the end of his life comes down to the devotion he had with Christ. Here's what I mean by devotion. I mean intimacy. I mean nearness. I mean relational connectivity. I mean communion with him. If you don't know what I'm talking about when I say that. If you don't know what it means to be devoted to Christ in an intimate, near, connected communion relationships, I would say you don't have one then. I know, I know that's strong. I understand that. And I'm, I'm just saying you'll know it if you have a relationship with Jesus. It's not something that you're like, do I, think, do I have a relationship with Jesus? I don't know. Well, it's, it's not that at all. The same truth that Paul was alluding to that was a secret for him to finish well is the same truth for us. In order to say this for ourselves and for this to be true of our own lives, we too must cultivate. Think of, think of you know, a farmer or, you know, gardening, cultivating his garden or his crops. An intimate, close, continued devotion to Jesus. Church, we must do that. We must cultivate and nurture an intimate, close, continued devotion to Jesus. And there's obviously other important parts to our Christian walks other than our personal devotion that will help us and that will aid us and that will cultivate our relationship with the Lord. I mean, that's going to church. That's accountability. That's having godly community. All those things are wonderful, and they add to our personal walks, or they should. But if you lose all of those things and you still have devotion to Christ on a very personal, intimate level, you're going to be okay. You know, it's going to hurt. You're going to suffer a little bit. It's not going to be per- You should have those things. But if you don't, as long as you have devotion to Christ, you will still be able to say these things. But if we lose our intimate, personal devoted relationship to Jesus himself. It's not our family's faith. It's not our spouse's faith. It's not our parent. I mean, if we lose our own relationship to Jesus, none of those other things will even matter. Right? Going to church, meeting with people, them asking you how you're doing, you're praying. All those things are just works with no meaning unless you have first the communion with Christ. You know what I mean? And for those of you, and, and I get what you're saying, but for those of you that if you like miss one week of church, it kind of ruins you. you. You know how like, it's kind of rightfully that you should like miss it or like miss corporate worship. It, that's okay. 
But if you miss one week of church or even two weeks of church, and by the end of like two or three weeks go by and you're just shambles because you haven't been filled up, you're getting it wrong. You're getting it wrong what this is. This is in addition to what you and Jesus have secretly and personally. You and Jesus are the most important thing that you you could ever have. Your relationship with Jesus is the most important thing that you have. You need to protect that. You need to nurture it. And you need to grow it above all else. If you're married, you understand that in order to keep your marriage healthy and good, or even keep it at all, It takes work and time and communication and effort and you need to protect it and you need to nurture it and you need to grow it. How much more with Christ? How much more? If you have to do that with a relationship that models, it's supposed to model your own personal relationship with Jesus, how much more do we need to do those things? Here's the truth. Everything wants to get in the way of you and Jesus. Everything wants to compete for that place in your heart. It doesn't even have to be a bad thing. Good things do that also. We know this. We live in a very fast, high-paced, always connected, phones always on. Anybody can get a hold of us at all times. We like to fill our time. Your time is fought over every day. Time with Jesus is not just going to come to you on a silver platter. It just won't. And the older you get, the, the less time you have. Hey, single people. <laughs> please, please, please don't tell me you're so busy and tired and you, you are doing that to yourself. I have to speak to you. I can't. When, you know, married and have kids, you don't know what's happening. You, you don't talk to me about busy yet. Don't talk to me. When you get married and you have kids, especially, you know, not sleeping many kids, this is hard. You got to be disciplined. You, I mean, we got to fight for our relationship with Jesus. And there's always important things. There's always important things that, you know, the excuse is I didn't have time. Or, if it's the most important relationship in your life, you will make time. Yeah. I'm just, anyway. That, that, that is so true. That is so true that we will, we will make time for what is most important to us. And if Jesus is our Lord and he is supposed to be everything to us, then church, why isn't he the most important? What, what's wrong with our devotion? Like, or, or just to wrap up, how are our walks set up? Are they set up for longevity and finishing well? Like your personal life with Jesus. Are, are we nurturing and maintaining our devotional life with the Lord? Paul, all that Paul desired for Timothy was that Timothy at the end of his life would say this. My hope for my own life, my heart for you would be that we individually and corporately as a church in the next however long, I don't know how old you are. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. I don't know. You have that much more. This is your race. That's, that's, that's the length of your race. I pray that this would be something that we can say in confidence that we have not fallen away from our Jesus. But if anything, we are closer and more in love with him then than we are now. And I love it because Paul alludes to this idea that there's a reward at the end of this race. And there is. Far better than any trophy or any medal or any recognition, the reward that we get at the end of our race is Jesus. In all his fullness, in all his splendor, in all his glory, we get to be with him for all of eternity. Jesus is the prize and he is our treasure that we are running toward. So church, allow the word of God to speak to you and allow this second set of worship, this musical time of worship that we have, 
for you to commune with Jesus, assess your life and see if it is set up to finish well. And if not, come to the Lord and ask that he give you the strength to do so. He would rearrange, he would do whatever it takes to get into that place where you and him are the most important thing. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word this morning. Thank you, Jesus, that that finishing well is not unattainable. That it really is a day in and day out endeavor. God, I pray that we as a church and we as a people would desire above all things to commune with you and be with you every day. That that we would take one day at a time over a long period. That you would teach us by your grace and by your spirit how to endure, how to finish well, how to long suffer, how to be patient Teach us these things, Lord, by your grace and by your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.